A new Star Wars journey begins in the place all good journeys begin. At, well, the beginning. This Star Wars Day, I'm excited to introduce the new Star Wars Canon Timeline Podcast, where we will piece together the complete story of that galaxy far, far away, in timeline order, from the dawn of the Jedi through the great unknown following the sequel trilogy. This is a podcast for both Star Wars superfans and complete newbies. Listen to the short intro episode now to hear how it works and what to expect over the coming weeks as we set the stage for the new television series, The Acolyte, which we will be covering with weekly breakdowns. Subscribe to the Star Wars Canon Timeline podcast wherever you listen to take part in one of the most epic and expansive stories ever told, following all the twists and turns from start to finish. May the 4th be with you all, all month and beyond. Welcome to the White Lotus Podcast, where the Lorehounds, your guides to your Italian dream vacation. I'm John. And I'm David. And this is our coverage of White Lotus Season 1, Episode 1, Ciao. Each episode, we are going to take a closer look at different themes, references, and history relevant to the episode. Today, we'll be discussing some production details and a story from Greek mythology the episode is hinting at. Then, we'll move into a scene-by-scene breakdown of the episode. Here's a reminder that you can send us feedback to whitelotus at thelorehounds.com, and we'll get to those emails in the next episode. We'd love to hear your hot takes, thoughts, and predictions. If you want to talk White Lotus with us sooner, join us over at the Bald Move Discord. Link in the show notes and at baldmove.com. And if you like what we do and want to support us directly, consider joining our Patreon. Find us at thelorehounds at patreon.com. Members get early access, ad-free episodes, and more. Of course, you can get our ad-supported podcast on our public Lorehounds feed by searching us on your podcast application of choice. No matter how you listen to us, we're happy as long as you enjoy our content. Lastly, we're going to be talking about some mature and sensitive topics on the show, and we'll try to do so respectfully. Any feedback is always appreciated at whitelotus at thelorehounds.com. All right, David, I think it's time we head into the hotel lobby before we start our recap. Should I sneak in like uh, Lucia and uh, Mia? <laughs> that is one fast slut you are. <laughs> he starts off hot. <laughs> so, David, what are your thoughts on this episode? I have mixed feelings. When I watched the episode the first time, I was kind of meh. I was like, okay, this is good. It's a table setter. You know, they're getting everything you know, into place. And while I don't want to overly compare season two to season one, I wasn't grabbed the same way that I was uh, by episode one from season one. Um, I kind of want to try and take season two on its own terms as much as possible. I don't know if Mike White wants us to do actual comparisons between the seasons. And, And at least with season one, it took me, even though visually the first episode was stunning and the characters were interesting and compelling, I didn't really get into the show until about episode three or four. So I'm trying not to hold myself to too similar of a critical take on the, on the episode and on the season. Cause I, I I don't know. I just want to maybe try and let the, um, the, the show production 
um, tell me the story that it wants to tell me and not have me comparing it to the first season. You know, I've really stayed away from a lot of reviews and, and news about this. So I just tried to go in as, as clean as I could. Now, that said, as I was doing my show notes uh, for this episode, the more that I got into the construction of this episode, the better I liked it. Wait, what do you mean by that? I mean that I think there's a lot more going on underneath than what's just on the surface. On the surface, it's like, oh, okay, beautiful hotel in Sicily and some comical ca- characters, obviously a, a death that they're you know, setting up a mystery for us for. Several deaths. Several deaths, apparently. They've upped the stakes a little bit. <laughs> a little bit. Um, and, you know, on that, as a plot device, I was a little worried. And again, this is where I'm trying to balance myself, not to compare too much season one to season two. But obviously, I knew that that was kind of coming. And the death reveal itself broke my verisimilitude. I, I didn't find the way that Daphne discovered the body at all credible. But then I was just like, no, nope, just, just let it be. It's just the fact that there's a body in the water and, and, and let it go. So, yeah, you know, and then they were like, oh, well, there's multiple bodies. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, that's just kind of a twist. So I'm kind of waiting to see, are they going to deliver a compelling story knowing that right up front, I've, they've just given me a plot device, right, that is now kind of White Lotus standard. So we'll all see. I'm I'm enjoying the performances so far. The dialogue is snappy, and uh, we've got some really interesting characters. And uh, we can see that there's going. <laughs> I think there's going to be a lot of uh, a lot of drama, a lot of dramatic tension coming at us. So so I'm in for it. I'm ready to go. Yeah, you know. First of all, I do remember when you were watching White Lotus season one because I pressured you to do so. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I was like, man, we got to cover this show. You get, were, get yeah. on to season one and check it out. And I remember that you were not hot on it at first. So I, I hope that you have a similar trajectory this season, where by the middle of the season, you are ready to go on the show. Yeah. You know what saved me in season one? I forget the characters names uh, off the top of my head. Um, but the son of the of the family his journey really gave me uh, the uh, rock that I could sort of hold on to because a lot of the other characters were not very sympathetic. Uh, I certainly enjoyed Armand's wild escapades, and I was waiting to see what was going to happen with him. Uh, but it was really the young son's journey that, that got me. He get, they really made him the most sympathetic of all the characters. And so I've yet to find... The, they've yet to give us the one character in this uh, ensemble that is going to be the person, that, at least that I feel like I can um, uh, have some affinity to. Yeah, I liked it a lot. I was a lot hotter. I was a lot hotter on it on my first view than you were. Okay. I was uh, blown away by a lot of the dialogue. Uh-huh. Uh huh. I really love the framing. I think I like the framing more because I really? am a descendant of Sicilian immigrants. Okay. And uh, like my grandfather came over on the boat from Sicily. <laughs> wow. And so I was vibing with this with this family structure. Nice. Uh, thankfully, my father was not a serial cheater. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> but no, but I get this whole like, we're all like, we're Sicilian. And then the son is doing exactly what I used to do and go, we're, we're of Sicilian heritage. You know, like not <laughs> like say we're from Sicily. 
Um, so, so I think that that's super fascinating and it made me laugh because I've, I've recognized a lot of these family interactions. Right. Nice. But yeah, no. So I think that I like that. Also, I grew up in an area where there were a ton of Sicilian and generally Italian immigrants. So I know these people. I feel like I know these people already. Right. Well, maybe that's something we could look into as one of our future research topics is that relationship between Italian Americans and Italians, because I know there's uh, some differences there. Italian Americans like the connections better than the Italians do. Yeah, the uh, the uh, DeGrasso family was certainly waving around their Italian heritage to everybody that they could uh, <laughs> right. talk to about it. And they, they're expecting every single person to be impressed by it, <laughs> which is amazing because they're yeah. in Sicily. Right. But yeah, no, I thought that the framing was great. Uh, these three generations who are going to give us three different looks at uh, sexual ethics, I guess I would say. Yeah. And compare, contrast the different generations and how they've treated women in the past and are treating women now. And on top of that, you have this amazing dialogue. You have these realistic conversations, I think, happening between the couples, between Ethan, Harper, and Daphne and Cameron. And overall, I thought it was a really great episode. I love the theme of being watched that I think we'll talk about as we go forward. Yes. Um, and I loved some of, the, some of the setup that they've put forward so far. Yeah, like I said, when I was doing the show notes, I could really start to see the structures. Uh, not exactly how they're going to play things out, but how they're setting up the thing. So I think you're right. I think there's going to be a lot of dramatic tension, uh, a lot of drama that they're going to throw at us. So yeah, that's cool. Okay, great. So one of the things we wanted to do for the show is have a little bit of a lore segment every time. And um, so each show, we're going to dig into a little different topic or something. And you have our first uh, look into the hotel business, uh, this particular hotel itself. Yeah. So I did some digging on the uh, production details and where they were filming. The cast stayed in this hotel that they filmed at for about six months. Uh, it is the San Domenico Palace in Taormina, Sicily, which uh -huh. is a small town. Um, the hotel itself is closed from November to March, so there's an off-season, sort of like The Shining. Uh, and Aubrey Plaza actually uh, compared living in the hotel for six months. She's like, yeah, uh, that's kind of like The Shining. You know, I started to get a little crazy. <laughs> She said she got into a feud with a local baker over cookies that she wanted and he was refusing to make. And uh, so they had a good time, it sounds like. It sounds like it. This hotel, by the way, is $685 a night for mm -hmm. a basic room in March. Right. Oh, right. In the low season uh, for a basic room. Sure. Right. So this is a very classy place. It's uh, set up way... I mean, it looks like it has a beautiful view of Mount Etna. Probably has a, a private beach access or something like that. Uh, it seemed like they had a, their own area down there. Yeah, um, yeah, and it looked um, it looked gorgeous. It looked like a, a beautiful place to spend some time. Yeah, as long as you don't get murdered. <laughs> That's true. All right, I had one other thing I wanted to talk yes. about, which my wife brought up to me, and uh -huh. I said, "Do you want to come on the podcast?" And she said, "No." So here's the information relayed from her. <laughs> so there's this Greek myth called Leda and the Swan. Oh. And the imagery from this myth is in the intro, in the opening credits, because, okay. you know, we, we have all these paintings and we should yeah. talk about, too, the fact that all of these paintings had either nudity or sexual content in them. Uh, and they were all classical paintings. And I think what they're trying to say with that intro is sexuality and sex kind of are pervasive, even in these classical 
you know, seemingly classy environments. Right. I mean, long before our Puritan or even um, what's the one era I'm thinking of, uh, in the, there's a lot of literature of repressed Victorian sexuality. Era. Victorian, thank you. Um, yeah, that uh, it goes, yeah, human sexuality is as old as humanity. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's a big part of life and it's a big part of this show. But back to Lita and the Swan. So this is a story about Zeus, who many people know was a shapeshifter, according to Greek mythology. And he would often change into different animals or, or objects, creatures, to impregnate and sexually assault women. And in this particular occasion, he transformed into a swan and uh, sexually assaulted Leda, and she became pregnant with Helen of Troy, who's famous for, you know, the, being the root of the Trojan War. Right. So there's another part in the show, too, that makes this more relevant, is that Portia, which is Tanya's assistant, is wearing a vest covered in swans. Like, they could not have done this accidentally. It's on the front and the back. I watched the... Um a little breaking down the episode kind of thing um, with uh, Portia. And yeah, that vest is very apparent, even in, in, in that interview that they did with her. So my wife's theory on how this connects to the plot is that Portia keeps saying how Bert is so cute and so sweet. Right. And oh, she Zeus. thinks that Bert is, is Zeus. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. So there's a long-term bet for you. Okay, you got some internet points down already. We haven't even got into the scene-by-scene scene breakdown, and you're already wagering. <laughs> All right, so speaking of scene-by-scene scene breakdown, I think it's time, David. Okay, we open with the White Lotus theme song and a montage of Rococo-style paintings depicting various scenes of romantic conflict and debauchery, which increase with intensity as the music also shifts in tone. I did have, I was really curious because you're uh, a musician, I guess. I don't know if you would call yourself a musician, maybe a piano player. Uh, <laughs> I put out some music in the past. You'll never find it. Yeah. Uh, so I was really, the, this, the, theme, the theme song seemed to shift uh, this season. So I was curious uh, about that as well as we've already talked a little bit about the, the opening um, montage of, of paintings. Yeah, I think it kind of goes along with what Mike White is trying to do with the plot here, which is it's the same but different. Like I'm, I'm doing a deconstruction of an element of the human experience, uh -huh. but it's going to be about a different aspect. And I think that season one is, was very much about racism, and you're seeing sex be the focal point of this season. Right. Yeah, there were plenty of scenes of sex in those, uh, in those paintings. Right. And so, you know, the, the theme is, is a modified version of the season one theme, and I think that that's perfect for representing what he's trying to do. I noticed, too, that as the music, uh, about halfway through the credits, maybe three quarters, it starts to shift and it sort of picks up the intensity and, um, and tempo and sort of brings back that sort of hooting, calling sound that the, the first theme song was so famous for. And as it did that, the scenes that they were showing us in the paintings got more and more violent or graphic and sexual nature. And so I thought that that was a very well-constructed set piece there. The opening was that um, they're really telling us that this season we're going to cruise along and then things are going to get really spicy really fast. Yep. I think that we're in for quite a ride. I think that this episode was a lot of setup. 
And uh, just like season one had a lot of setup in the first episode, and I don't think that we have any idea where it's going right now. Uh, but before we go forward, David, I mentioned this to you on chat, and I forgot to bring it up in the yeah. hotel lobby. David, who's going to die this season? Oh, are we going to do this, are we? We're going to do it. And then here's what we're going to do. Okay. You and I are going to record our takes now, and I'm going to uh-huh. splice it up, and I'm going to put it in the, fi- uh, in the final episode, and we're going to talk about who got it right. Or wrong. Okay. Or maybe both of us got it wrong. Right. Oh, uh, boy. It's so early. Like, these are real uh, open gambles here. Um, I kind of... I don't know why necessarily Greg might die, but I certainly wouldn't mind if he did. I mean, yep. Tanya's, you know, has some issues of her own, but um, Greg has kind of turned into a brat, and I really don't like the way that he's, uh, he's treating her. So I kind of could see that that would be possible. Well, Greg has a TV cough of death. Yeah. Right. He's, he is, uh, uh, he was stricken. Well, he, it was a cancer diagnosis and that was what, like three years ago in the showtime. Is that, I think what I heard? Something like that. Yeah. Um, then I was concerned for Dominic and maybe, uh, oh, I hope it's not Mia, but that certainly would be tragic. I mean, I didn't see Armand's death coming at all in season one. Like, I you know I I think the mystery in season one really set me up very well because I was watching the episode the season all the way through really like trying to clock like when is something going to happen and who's it going to happen to, um, and in this one, I I'm just I'm just not sure yet but maybe Mia maybe because she's um, got to have a, a tragic demise. Hmm, I could see that. Yeah. All right. I'm going to make a wild guess here. Go for it. I think that Ethan's going to die. Ethan. And I think it's because when Cameron said he was the original incel, uh-huh. he was not kidding and he was not exaggerating. Uh, interesting. Okay. I think All that right. Ethan is behaving very well for his current wife. Uh-huh. And that he's been doing so for years. But I think deep down there's some problematic thoughts that are going to be awakened throughout the season. Okay. Okay. That is my long-term bet. Okay. Is that Ethan is the one who dies, at least one of them who dies. Okay. Do you have thoughts on on other potential victims? Um, I would say Portia is a possibility, but that would make me sad. Yeah. Obviously not Daphne because she discovers the body. Right. Yeah. She's out. Um, and po- not Cameron either, because you'd be distraught. It looked to me like in my head when I saw the legs and feet, I, I-, I coded uh, male. So, uh, but that I, I haven't gone back uh, to look at closer. So that was my first thought. I take out my ruling out of Cameron because she could not know yet. Right. Right. All right. So those are my two guesses, Ethan and Cameron. And Portia, so three. Are we gonna revisit these? Are we gonna revisit these each episode? No, no, no you don't get to. You don't get oh. to change your bet. You gotta, Goodness you me. gotta do it now, and then we gotta see at the at the last episode. We can talk about it more as we go. Okay, the bet is now. Where the bet, the bets are locked in. Okay, all right. Woo, I'm nervous. I'm nervous. 
Um, and if uh, you're out there and you're listening and you want to get in on uh, this, I guess you could join us on the uh, White Lotus channel. We've got a whole channel set up in, in our Discord for that. Uh, each episode is um, uh, protected from the other episodes, so that way you can, if you're not caught up yet, you can um, just jump into uh, that episode channel and you won't get spoiled. And then you could also send us uh, your takes by email, and then uh, we'll try to take those into account. Each each episode will have a uh, listener feedback, so definitely send lounge. us in. Yes, a guest lounge. Very good. <laughs> Clever. Okay, cool. All right. Uh, are we ready for the next scene? I'm ready. Okay. So we open on a scene of a beach resort where Daphne Sullivan chats with some other guests who are recent arrivals. Daphne takes a swim and discovers a body floating in the water. The hotel manager, Valentina, arrives on scene and her assistant, Rococo, Rococo? Rocco, briefs her on the situation. What did you make of this one? Yeah, you know, I'm glad that at least that we know that they're not repeating the concierge dies trope Uh that they did in season one. And I loved Valentina going, well, it's not hotel property, so we're fine. (laughs) That was classic. Yeah. How about you? Yeah, I was, um, uh, this is, I I had a, like I said before in in my opening comments, I was a little bit taken out of the, um, of the setup for this because I just didn't buy the way that the body floated by Daphne. And I didn't really buy that whole scene. That said, I can box that up and I can just leave it. Okay. There's a, there's a body in the water. I did love Valentina and Rocco's interaction, and that's when we get our first taste of uh, Valentina as a character. And I was, I was, I had in my mind Armand, right? Even though I wasn't thinking Armand, oh, very different. He was still in my, yeah, he was still in my mind. And so when she showed up, I'm like, oh, whoa, this is a different person. Whoa, 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 whoa. I got to figure this out. And so later on, I'm, I'm really enjoying her character, and I want to know more about this actress because this is not an easy role to play. She is just. So unknowingly rude, and it's hilarious. Yes, we'll get to that. But yeah, it's so good. So yeah, and then of course they throw the twist in there. Hey, multiple bodies in the water. Huh? Okay. Yeah. All right. Where are we at next? We flash back to one week earlier with the resort yacht motoring into dock at the White Lotus Resort. On board, we meet our main characters for the season. A foursome of friends, including Ethan and Harper Spiller, um, Cameron and Daphne Sullivan, and then we meet the, where we see the DeGrasso family, uh, Patriarch Bert, played by F. Murray Abraham, son Dominic, and grandson Albie. Then we see the one and only Tanya McQuad. <laughs> I can't do how she did it in, the, in season one. It was Tanya great. McQuad. McQuad. Uh, now McQuad Do Hunt. I get my, my Jennifer Coolidge impression award yet? Uh, I think you still got to work on it. It's going to be listener judged. Oh, I don't know. Good. That was good. That was pretty good. <laughs> so we see Tanya and her assistant, but we don't see Greg. And then we cut to a street scene where we meet two local friends, Mia and Lucia, who are residents. And we learn later that Lucia is a sex worker and she has an arrangement to meet with one of the guests that's coming in on the boat. Yeah, it, it becomes pretty clear pretty quickly who that guest is going to be i think yeah yeah i i was that that was dominic was my guess right from the start yeah yeah again i know these characters i just right. i just feel like i know these uh, the, the degrassos i feel like they lived in my neighborhood right 
the, brilliant. First of all, F. Murray Abraham, who plays Bert. Yeah. He's in the Grand Budapest Hotel, another hotel piece of media that Bald Move covered last week. And he's brilliant in that. He basically narrates the whole thing. And he's got such a voice and he's such a wholesome character in that. And now he's this old pervert. So, <laughs> right, which is sometimes like very shocking. I wrote down in my notes, uh, and, and, and you had referenced this earlier about this generational thing. I wrote down um, Bert as a boomer, son Dominic as a Gen Xer, and the grandson, Albie, as a millennial. I don't know. Do those line up for you? I think Albie is a Zoomer. I think he's somewhere think between so? millennial and Gen Z. A junior millennial or an elder yeah. Z? Yeah, I think that's okay. how Zoomer is defined right in. Yeah, I um, I was definitely getting, I mean, he's obviously way more touchy-feely, uh, where Dominic is uh, he has that a little bit more of a, a feral touch to him. And then, yeah, <laughs> Bert is just like, what? Like, I'm a white male. I, what, why are you challenging my privilege? I can do what I want. Uh, very, very Boomer energy. Yeah, yeah. Bert is is just peak Boomer. Yeah, uh, very interesting to see the three of them and how they uh, they interact with women. I mean, I believe I don't remember which article, and I'm sorry for not giving credit to this, but somebody said harmless versus embarrassing versus harassment flirting. Yeah, that's that's about the. Sum Those of are it. the three ways that these people look at it. All right, so we uh, cut to a scene on the dock, and Valentina instructs the hotel staff on the proper way to greet the guests. As the guests disembark from the yacht, Mia and Lucia look on. Valentina greets each party of guests and awkwardly insults them as she attempts to be welcoming. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, because you are so old. Amazing. Amazing. It was so good. And it's like one of those things where the guests are going, is this a cultural thing? Is this a language right. thing? Is she just a buffoon? <laughs> but like, none of the other Italians are this rude. So I think that she's just like a rude person. Right. And I love that she was admonishing the guests on the proper way to do things and then yet just sticks her foot in her mouth. Yeah, every, yeah, yeah. You know, it was, it was great. Perfect. It was good stuff. Okay, next we get a transition scene with some beautiful drone photography lifting us up to the main part of the hotel. In their room, Rocco explains to the foursome of friends that the resort was formerly a convent. Hmm, that's an interesting detail. Yeah. He also explains the Testa di Moro, which is a recurring visual motif in the episode. Harper is awkward, and the friends retire to their own rooms. What do you think of Harper? I love Harper. <laughs> I've known a lot of Harpers in my life. Uh-huh. They have their charms. And, and I've known a lot of male harpers, you know what I mean? Like just people mm -hmm. who are very, very serious about causes that they believe in and kind of don't know how to loosen up. Right. Uh, and and it's, it's a very interesting person. Uh, they can be hard to be around sometimes and sometimes, but they're also like the people who get things done and are really important to the world. Um, so I, I mean, I, I liked Harper a lot. I think that she was a very realistic representation of sort of workaholics. Yeah, I, I really got that vibe from her. Like, she is very focused. Like, she'd be the person at the office that you don't knock on their door unless you know exactly what you're going to say and why you're saying it. Right. Yeah. What did you think about Harper in general? Aubrey Plaza is killing it. I, you know, to be honest, uh, I, a lot of people are talking about Aubrey Plaza. I, I don't know her from before this. Really? And yeah. 
She usually plays a much more evil character. In fact, she commented on that on her Colbert interview. She said, I never really get to play my not evil side, but here I am. Yeah, there she is. And like just everything that she did from the champagne thing uh, to the, uh, you know, in the in the room and talking about like the adjoining room doors, all of that was just like, wow, to give that vibe uh, and to make everybody else uncomfortable. It like really made me uncomfortable. I was very affected by her performance, which is Good and bad. Well, good because, you know, she's doing her job as an actor. Uh, bad because I'm like having a, I'm having an emotional reaction that I'm having to manage. And this isn't reality, right? This right. is uh, the secondary world. But, you know, that, that means, I guess, that the show is doing its job. Okay. Why do you think, first of all, Cameron and Daphne invited her and Ethan on this trip? I don't yet have uh, thoughts on the motive. I mean, obviously, I mean, we I could take um, uh, Harper's uh, guess at face value that Cameron wants something from Ethan, but yeah, I, I really, I really don't know just yet. I don't, you know, they haven't really shown us how close Cameron and Ethan are as friends outside of college. You know, I don't know how much they've been hanging out in the preceding years and things like that. Obviously, Daphne and Cameron talk about having their family and they have kids. So that's a very, you know, they're living a very, as both you and I are both parents, we know that that is a very different lifestyle from our friends who don't have children. Our just, our interests and our focus and our time are, are devoted elsewhere. So yeah, I don't suspect that they're hanging out a lot together prior to this and so why would they invite them yeah i'm i'm really unclear still so how do you link that with the eagerness i would say because on one hand you have aubrey plaza being awkward i have to talk yeah. about her with her, her character named harper being awkward about linking the rooms but at the same time you have cameron and daphne super duper enthusiastic about linking the room yeah. do you think that that has anything to do with why they invited them i so in the boat scene, when they were um, cutting between the two couples, Cameron winks at Harper, I think. Mm. And I was like, oh, hang on a minute there. And then later in another upcoming scene where Ethan and Daphne are alone together, Daphne was given some vibes, at least that I interpreted. So I was like, so I was really looking at the swinger kind of um, equation here for these foursome, for this foursome. Yeah, I think they might be polyamorous and uh, um, feeling them out, I guess, on, right. on their desire to join them in that. <laughs> <laughs> right, in that activity. Testa di Moro. Uh, I think we need to do, this will be probably one of our deep dives. If anybody out there has any information on Testa de Moro or where you could point us into to some more uh, research, that would be great. But this seems to be a pretty strong visual element that Mike White is weaving into the storyline. Just being watched, the idea of being watched throughout this hotel. As well, the idea of um, sexual infidelity, uh, repercussion, uh, you know, she's sort of what, I mean, if the if I get the story right, the Sicilian woman, in a way, had her um, her public honor taken away from her because this was a married man. So now she's an adulterer. And so, like, is she going to, would she be able to be, you know, be married to a, 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 another Sicilian in the future or not? 
some, you know, she sort of stuck to a life of, of being single. And so she takes his head as a, as a badge. I don't know. I, I, I think it's an interesting question, given the sexual dynamic that the show is building. Yeah, a lot of interesting conversations to have. I'm sure that that's not a one-off theme. I'm sure that we're going to see more of that throughout the season. Absolutely. And I think we'll, we'll try to do some research and we'll, we'll include that in one of our, our future little lore segments. Yeah. All right. So the DeGrassos settle into their rooms. Patriarch Bert awkwardly harasses a member of the hotel staff while his son and grandson look on. Son Dominic uh, exposits that they are here to visit their ancestral homeland. So that's when we first really learn about their mission uh, here on Sicily. Right. The ancestral homelands that you've never even heard about and you don't speak the language of. <laughs> right. And this is where we get um, our character portrait of Bert. Right. All right, we're going to take a quick break. And when we get back, we'll have more White Lotus. All right, we uh, get a scene then of Tanya greeting her now husband, Greg, who's arrived ahead of Tanya. Greg sees that Portia, Tanya's assistant, is there with her, and he angrily insists that Tanya send Portia away. Tanya tells Portia to stay in her room. The Greg system. Get her the fuck out of here. (laughs) Room service macaroons. Yeah. Greg seems to have become very entitled. I mean, I think before he was just a, uh, you know, a white collar, you know, I mean, he was apparently in, in potentially in law enforcement in the Bureau of Land Management, you know, so he's a, he's a working guy, probably, you know, modest middle class. Uh, and now he's swanning about to these big fancy resorts. And I think he's feeling a little bit entitled. Yeah, I think that he was a nice guy to get into Tanya's good graces. And now, I mean, I don't know if he was using her for money or if he just feels comfortable sort of speaking in an abusive manner to her now generally, but he's certainly not a good partner now. The overall contempt that Greg shows Tanya in their, at least in this beginning scene, really, uh, I think belies the fact that he's not happy that they got married. He may be enjoying the spoils of, of being married to a half a billionaire, if, if that's what they, uh, like if that. The, the number is correct. But he has grown, I'm guessing, tired of her antics. I don't want to necessarily call them antics, but, you know, just her personality and her, her way of being. And rather than be straight up about it and go, hey, this isn't working for me anymore, and either we should you know, get some you know, counseling or we should try to fix this, or we should separate and you know, I'll go my own way because I'm not happy anymore, that, that level of contempt is just uh, um, uh, pretty terrible. It's, it's pretty terrible to see it on scene. Yeah, it was very disturbing, and it only got worse. Yeah, by, by a long shot. And then... The poor Portia, the downstream effect of that is that, you know, she's getting it from, you know, as, you know, as we say, shit rolls downhill, right? Like, you know, Greg is not happy. So he really charges up Tanya, who then has to, you know, try to put her foot down. And poor Portia is is sort of caught in this matrix of toxicity. We should talk about this more 
when Portia is crying by the pool, but okay, it does not seem like a bad deal to me to be banished to stay away from your boss for a week at a fancy hotel. (laughs) (laughs) I can imagine that if she just goes on a hike once a day, that Tanya gives her a hard time. Like, it was kind of silly for her to go to the main dining room during dinner, during like the main dinner hours when she was told to stay away from this guy. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I feel for Portia, but I'm also like, you could do a better job just having a good time here. Making yourself scarce and still having a good time. Sure. All right. Uh, Ethan explains that he and Cameron were roommates who became friends in college. And we learned that Ethan recently became rich having sold his startup. Hmm. Yeah, so here we get to see into uh, Harper's um, attitudes and opinions a little bit more. She, she's she got a real nasty streak to her. Yeah, um, she is a little mean sometimes, and I don't know if she realizes yeah. that. I think that, again, like, I think that a lot of people go through phases in their life, too, where they're like Harper, where they're very attached to a cause and they can't see anything past that cause. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think Harper's in a, in a place where she, yeah, she basically says it later, which is, you know, there are so many miserable people in the world and there's so many things wrong with the world. How could I possibly enjoy anything? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good thesis statement for her character. Right. Question about Ethan's business. Does it matter what his business is? I don't think so. But he, if he recently, um, sold his startup. I'm wondering what he's doing on his computer all the time. Right. Well, you know, I've never sold a startup that uh, uh, I made so much money at that I could go on a vacation like this. So uh, I can only imagine that there's probably still a lot of work to be done. You know, we don't know the the deal on the back end. And it seems like he's that kind of a guy anyway. Like he's, I, I could envision him always, like his laptop is never far from um, from his hands. Could be. Maybe he needs to check up on some forums. Maybe he's on 8chan. I don't know. We don't know. We don't know what Ethan's doing on that computer. So we see a scene of Portia uh, managing Tanya's bags. And then we see a scene of Valentina scolding the hotel staff while Mia and Lucia try to sneak into the hotel. And um, Valentina chases them off. I like the whole sort of comedy routine of them trying to get into the hotel. That's a lot of fun. Yeah. And Valentina seems to be uh, always admonishing the staff. Yeah. I mean, Armand did a lot of that too, and he was a lot jollier. Right. Yeah. So Mia and Lucia, what do you think about these two characters, David? Um, so I, one little piece of, uh, of knowledge I, I picked up somewhere along <laughs> the, my travels on the internet was that the town where this is in Sicily, uh, remind me the name here. Uh, Taramina. Taramina is a rather economically depressed uh, place other than the, you know, except for the, the resort business. So I could see that a couple of young kids from uh, a small town, you know, in a, in a semi-rural environment would be very you know, interested in, uh, well, at least Lucia is, is in making some money and, you know, in, in getting on with her life. And I think they also introduced that uh, Mia is a romantic. You know, she talks about, you know, being in love with her boyfriend here. So we see two, well, two very good friends 
two very different individuals whose personalities are, are definitely going to come into play in the uh, coming drama. I mean, clearly that we see that the OnlyFans economy is active in Sicily. Right, it is, yes. Yeah, and uh, but at the same time, I mean, I think that the show is doing a good job of not villainizing somebody who is engaging in sex work. Right. Um, Lucia is very charming. Uh, I think that she is a good friend uh, and is, it, it just seems like she's a fun person to be around just like as a friend. And that is a cool way to portray a sex worker in 2022, whereas I think in the past she would have been portrayed as less than a fully formed human personality. Right. More of a one-dimensional character. Right. Yeah. Here we see that she's got dreams and aspirations. Uh, we see that she's um, looking out for her friend, even though she's trying to you know, rope her in a little bit, but she's also making sure that she uh, gets taken care of. All right, so we go from there to a scene with Dominic in his room, who's having an uncomfortable phone call with who we assume is his ex-wife, Abby. Dominic tries to apologize for his past behavior, but Abby isn't having any of his BS. We learn that Dominic's daughter, Kara, isn't speaking to him, and that his son, Albie, is a kind-hearted person, unlike other members of the DeGrasso family. Abby loses her shit and hangs up on Dominic. This was a pretty interesting scene setting up Dominic's arc here. All right, David. So HBO just confirmed who plays Abby. Oh, really? It is Laura Dern. Laura Dern, really? (laughs) That's funny. Nobody, I believe somebody said nobody does exasperated like Laura Dern. That was, she, the, the, the intensity at which that, that phone call ended from where it started was a Saturn V rocket going into orbit. She was not <laughs> having Dominic's BS. Laura Dern is great at yelling. I don't know if you saw um, Big Little Lies, but she had a similar arc in there at a certain point, And she got to do some in-person screaming at a man, which was insane and awesome. So, uh, so Dominic, I mean... Him sitting on the bed there, cross-legged, talking, he seemed to be trying to be sincere, but we don't know the history. But clearly, the reaction of Abby was that he's tried to apologize in the past before. Well, and I think that any sincerity that he might have had in that moment is undermined by the fact that he invites Lucia over later. And also that he had already had the setup, like she was going to meet him that night. Yes. I think it less that he meets her later that night, more that he had pre-set that up. Yeah. I mean, a little of both. I think that, uh, you know, if you're really sad that your wife is upset with you and you're committed to being a better person, you know, supposedly, then you don't go and hire someone for sex. Right. Right. It seems like, uh, yeah, Dominic is dealing with some stuff as he tells Lucia later. Uh, he seems to be pretty sad. Maybe, maybe he's not very happy in, in his lot in life currently. So did you see the painting in Dominic's room that was sort of very Catholic? No, I didn't notice it at all. Okay, so that is St. Lucia. Uh-huh. Oh my God, are you serious? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow. All right. Who is also the patron saint of eyesight vision. Uh-huh. And, uh, and so you're seeing more of being watched Wow. Or clarity. Like, is she going to bring some clarity to, uh, to one of the characters here? I don't know. That's Could interesting. Be. All right. There's something to keep an eye on. 
All right, so then we get a series of interlaced scenes, and rather than trying to unpack each scene, I'll just follow each of the character um, arcs as they go through. So we see Albie swimming in the pool while Portia complains about her job to her friend Sarah on the phone. Albie and Portia meet and chat, and then Bert trips and falls as he's coming down to check out the pool area. Hmm, was this a real fall? Oh, yeah, I think I think so. Uh, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. All right. I was debating that in my head. No, I think it absolutely was a real fall. I, I don't know why he would would fake fall like that. So. Well, so some of the women staff would come and pick him up. Yeah, <laughs> possibly. I do like how he tries to try and hit on on Portia, though, as he's uh, <laughs> getting yelped up by her. Zeus has come to say hi. Yeah, that's OK. Interesting. All right. All right. All right. So I'm going to I'm going to hold on to that thought because you you had seeded that idea about him being Zeus earlier. So I'll, I'll keep an eye in the back of my, I'll keep that thought in the back of my head as, as he goes forward. So what do you make of uh, Portia and Albie? They had a nice little interaction. I think that they are sort of on the same wavelength mm-hmm. of, uh, at least generationally. I think that she's coded a little bit younger than him um, as being like firmly in Gen Z, uh-huh. whereas he's sort of teetering on the edge of millennial Um and I love that he was sort of embarrassed to say that he went to a good school, right. which is definitely a millennial Gen Z thing. Uh huh. Um, and that, and she was also self degrading herself and saying, "Oh, well, I went to a crappy school," and and that is just such a, a funny way to portray this generation, which I am in. I am a millennial. I just for so for any time I make fun <laughs> of millennials, I'm allowed. So I promise. Uh, yeah. So what did you think about them? Uh, I thought, you know, she was saying to her friend Sarah on the phone, and I don't know if this is a friend or a a family uh, member, but she was, uh, joking about, you know, wanting to be tossed around by a, by a husky, uh, Italian. And obviously Albie, you know, looks like he could be Italian. So when she was looking over at him, I was like, uh, do you know that this guy's an American? And then they start chatting and then they have a natural rapport. And I thought it was sweet. I mean, I think they're two young kids sort of in their, uh, you know, they're, they're not in their element. They're in an element that they can operate in and they understand the rules of how to operate there. I mean, obviously, if Portia's a, a personal assistant, you know, she's used to dealing with uh, higher end types of facilities and resorts and that kind of stuff. So she knows how to handle herself. Well, certainly Albie seems like he he comes from some means. I'm guessing Dominic, uh, you know, has money. So I just thought it was sweet that they had a, a a nice genuine interaction. And I'm sure both of them are just desperate for uh, some sane human company, given the people that they're uh, around uh, through most of this trip. Yeah, I mean, they're both definitely clearly lonely here. I think yeah. that they feel isolated from the broader culture and from the, it looks like a largely, you know, Gen X uh, to older millennial population there. Yeah. Okay, then we get a series of scenes with the Spillers and the Sullivans getting to know each other more. Harper talks about her work as an HR lawyer, and Cameron makes a series of awkward st- statements that further upset Harper. Harper is relieved that she has found her Ambien, which leads to a conversation about the news and the state of the world. Cameron and Daphne joke about not watching the news or voting, which further alienates Harper. Cameron takes off his shirt and complains that he doesn't have any swimming trunks because of his lost luggage. Ethan offers to lend Cameron a pair of his, 
and Harper takes Cameron to their rooms to retrieve some sunscreen and the swimming trunks. Daphne and Ethan exchange a look. So right there, I was like, wait, what is that look that Daphne just gave Ethan? I was like, hmm, something, something seems strange there. So you think that that was the polyamorous look? I, you know, I couldn't. Yeah, there, there, there. It felt like there was some sort of like the the camera was giving us a clue to uh, something in the nature of the the relationship of this foursome. Yeah, here's my advice to Harper: delete Twitter. If you delete Twitter, a lot of your anxiety is going to be gone. I just <laughs> I see it in you, Harper, and. The ambient, you, you can have ambient and Twitter, or you could have no ambient and no Twitter. I, I, I don't think that you can mix those two, though. So interesting uh, about Cameron and Daphne. I mean, talk about privilege, right? Like, if you feel like you don't have to pay attention to the news and, and voting isn't uh, a priority for you, like, I think that really belies their status and, uh, and the fact that they can live a life that's unaffected by a lot of what's happening in the world today. And I don't think that the show is portraying either side as like good or evil. I think that the point of the show is that both of these extremes are not great. Is that, you know, Harper and Ethan need to learn to let go a little bit and de-plug for their own mental health. Right. And so that they can do a better job helping the world. So because they're humans and they want the world to be good and they're enjoying the world. Whereas, obviously, Cameron and Daphne need to get a little bit more plugged in and pay attention to things and know about things that matter and not just things that are fun. Yeah, I mean, it it seems like Harper and Ethan are highly intelligent, highly skilled, competent people who get stuff done. But um, at least Harper is is, uh, uh, wrestling with... She's more upset about the circumstances of of life, as you say, whereas if she were to let go slightly, she'd be a happier, healthier person, probably more effective than at her job as well. Well, she watches Ted Lasso. Yeah, well, that's good, right? (laughs) What did you make of uh, an Apple TV show getting plugged on an HBO show? Um, I I think it's good that they let it happen because I think that that was the only show that made sense there. Uh Uh-huh. Uh, it, it was hilarious how they're how they're going. Yeah, we watch documentaries and documentaries, documentaries. And right. Ted Lasso, and they're, oh yeah. <laughs> I, I loved the 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 whole conversation about binging and TV watching because you know uh, as a, you know TV podcasters we're sort of in that frame. So uh, I did enjoy that little comment. Fun conversation. I thought this was one of the more realistic ones, honestly. I've heard I've heard this exact conversation happen of like, oh, you don't watch the news or oh. Oh, you need to learn to let go. You know, it's just, you know, it's the same. It, it is a tale as old as time. Yeah. All right. We get to uh, the next scene with Tanya and Greg getting reacquainted after being apart. Greg seems agitated and has an air of gruff entitlement. Their conjugal conversation is disrupted when Tanya has a moment of disassociation. She explains that she has a strange vision of men's faces with effeminate hairstyles. She tells Greg that she saw him in her vision, but that his eyes were like a shark's eyes, lifeless eyes, black eyes, like a doll's eyes. Sorry, I had to throw that in there. Uh, (laughs) Just it it caught me too much. Greg walks off in a huff and shames Tanya for her eating habits and weight. Mm. What did you think about this? No good, Greg. 
No good, Greg. No good, Greg. Let's complete no the Greg no. system. Eat five macaroons. Is <laughs> e. No, no macaroons for you, Greg. Um, so here we definitely have the the Testa di Moro making mm-hmm. an active intrusion into reality here. Uh, Tanya says that she had some medication, so I guess we can discount her experience a little bit. But the show is at least suggesting that these statues and and this theme is a little bit more than just a visual. Right. Well, I think it's um, I think it's an interesting piece of writing because rather than just having the 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 busts um, be there static, they're actually taking an active part in the what's driving the characters, what's triggering the characters. Yeah, I'm really curious what they're going to do with them this season. And I mean, the whole I saw your eyes, Greg, like a shark's eyes. I think that she's starting to see through him a little bit. She's just sort of in denial. Oh, that's a good insight. Interesting. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, maybe he is being a little bit shark-like, right? Yeah. Totally. Okay, back in Harper and Ethan's room, Harper gives Cameron a pair of Ethan's swim trunks. As Harper looks for sunscreen in the bathroom, rather than going back to his own room to change, Cameron strips in view of Harper, and we all get a good look at Cameron's white male privilege. Yeah, so can we agree that this was an intentional exposure? Oh, absolutely. He knows exactly what he's doing. He walks behind her in the mirror. Yeah. No, I think he's a kind of guy that's used to using his physicality to dominate in relationships, even though he does it sort of, you know, good-naturedly. That sort of alpha domineering side, it comes out in this, hey, I'm, you know, I'm just, you know, getting changed. It's the human body. It's whatever, you know, and it's all part of his privilege. I think it fits in with the potential feeling her out for a yes group sex session yes Uh, i think it fits with that theory i was getting strong even when they got up to walk away from the table there was a physicality about them together there was some chemistry there on his side or her side both like they were i think they're both you think so yeah yeah i i i don't know yeah i think and i think the look i mean i think you know part of her look was like you know absolute shock and horror the fact that this guy thinks he can just change you know fully in in view of her but i think she might also have been a little bit like whoa like hey you know i don't know hey there big fella i don't know i don't know i'll need more evidence for that david okay so next we see Albie talking to his dad about Bert's fall, and Albie says that he's worried about a concussion. Dominic acts cagey, saying he has work stuff, and that Bert should sleep in Albie's room for the night to keep an eye on him. Mm, yeah, well, we know why that happened. Yeah, so clearly a setup here for, um, for what's going to happen later. But then we get a little bit more information about um, uh, Dominic uh, and I think that's when we first get a hint that that's, you know, when we can really put the pieces together and say, oh, this is, you know, Lucia is probably, you know, coming to meet him. Right. So he's being cagey and pushing his father off on his, on, on his, to his son. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, you see it all the time. You see, oh, you, you go spend some time with your grandpa. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I do it with my kid. <laughs> you know, go, go spend some time with your mom. <laughs> 
All right, next we see uh, Mia and Lucia keeping an eye on the front entrance of the hotel, hoping for a break to sneak back in. Lucia explains to Mia that sex work is lucrative and that Mia should join her to help make extra money so that Mia can pay for her interest in music. So this is more on on Mia's uh, romantic side. Mia demurs and says she is still in love with her boyfriend Massimo, but agrees to sneak into the hotel with her again. They see an opportunity and sneak back. Yeah, um, I like their relationship a lot. Mm-hmm. I think that it's it's very charming. I think that I'm wondering how much is Lucia trying to get Mia in on the business and how much is genuine friendship because it just, it did rub me a little bit the wrong way when she's like, come on, come with me, you know. Right. Because, you know, sex work is a big decision, and that should be Mia's alone. Right. Yeah, I think, uh, I don't think, I don't get a sense of her pressuring her. And then in a later scene, we we see that she doesn't, um, she doesn't give Mia too hard a time about it. I, I We certainly do see that Mia is a much more sweet-natured person. She's still in love with her boyfriend. She's into music. Right. So, yeah, very much a a romantic figure, which is what is giving me the question mark if that if Mia is going to be one of our victims at the end of the season here. Yeah. Yeah. I'm excited to see where this goes. All right, David, why don't we take a quick break? And when we get back, we'll get into the dining room. And we're back. David, do you want to lead us into the dining room scene? Sure. After a quick transition, we open back into the dining room and a piano singer. We then cut to Lucia doing Mia's makeup in a bathroom, and Mia complains that she looks like a hooker. This was just kind of a fun little scene, like, you know, two gal pals uh, having, a, having a giggle, doing something slightly transgressive. Yeah. I look like a butana. <laughs> do you speak Italian? I know a few words. My father knew okay. a few. My father knew more words, and his father knew the whole thing. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, Mia. Mia does complain, but she still goes. You know, goes out with it anyway. So good on her. Yeah. So then, uh, Tanya and Greg enter the dining room where Tanya spots Portia. While Greg talks to the maitre d, Tanya admonishes Portia to go back to her room. <laughs> Jennifer Coolidge is just a brilliant actor. <laughs> my god go back to your room <laughs> right so good i mean the physical comedy when she's like mouthing it to her uh <laughs> so brilliant i loved every minute of it yeah i was really surprised that portia didn't just get up and and leave she actually sticks around for a little while i think that portia is testing her luck here to be honest with you i like i said i mean what was wrong? I had to eat. Yeah, you could have ordered room service like you did right after this anyway. Yeah. And and to, to kind of drag your feet knowing that if Greg does see you, like it's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to get really awkward if, if Greg actually catches, a, you know, catches a sight of her. Yeah. I wonder if this is her first interaction with Greg. Oh, she must must have. You know, I think they absolutely know each other. Okay. Yeah, no, I think so. Right, Dominic and Albie look on in embarrassment as Bert flirts with their waiter. We learn that Dominic is someone important in Hollywood, and Dominic admonishes his father about his behavior. 
Bert explains why he enjoys flirting. Albie questions his grandfather's physiology, and Bert extols the virtue of having a daily release. Do you want to say the line? Uh, no. <laughs> it's a penis. It's not a sunset. <laughs> oh my gosh. It is a brilliant line. It is a brilliant line. <laughs> and F. Murray Abraham is just all in on this performance. Like, there is no holding back. He is this guy. Absolutely brilliant line. Um, the, the whole conversation, first of all, Abby, don't ask your grandfather those questions if you don't want to hear the answers. What is wrong with you? That was your fault, Ab- Abby. Right. It wasn't comfortable. Yeah. Second, just this whole scene was delightful. I mean, the back and forth was great. Uh, the, the combination flicking through with Tanya yelling at Portia really did add to this tension and this level of awkwardness. And it was a great, like, yeah. uh, sort of building uh, uh, there was sort of a, a building explosion of tension leading up to that uh, drink throw that we see later. Right. Yeah, absolutely. The dinner scene became very, uh, very pivotal and pivotable, pivot, pivotal. And this, um, this interaction that Bert has with, uh, with flirting with the waiter really starts to set the tone. And then they just turn the dial with the whole conversation about, you know, uh, men's sexual health and, and Albie, you know, questioning his father's <laughs> abilities. I just, it was shocking. Uh, I, 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 you know, kudos to Albie for being, you know, bold enough to ask that kind of question. I don't give him kudos. Bert, you know what? Have as many sessions as you want in the privacy of your own hotel room and leave the <laughs> right. workers alone. Right. Unless it's consensual or, you know, do like your son and uh, make a, you know, an arrangement. No, Bert, I don't think you have the judgment level to decide when it's consensual. So just leave everyone alone. I, 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 <laughs> it's just I, you have not demonstrated proper judgment here. No, not not. Well, you know, he, he has, again, a level of privilege that he he feels that he's entitled to to act and behave in this manner. All right, Mia and Lucia make their way across the dining room, drawing the attention of Cameron and Ethan and the DeGrassos. The girls take a seat at the bar, also drawing attention, drawing the attention of the piano player. So clearly, um, their uh, costumes are working because they have the attention of every male character in the in the scene. Yeah, I look like a Butano. Yeah, you do. It's true. All right, Cameron calls Ethan the original incel, and when Ethan takes offense, Cameron compliments him. Harper suggests to Ethan what they should order for dinner, and Cameron and Daphne look on in embarrassment. Harper sees that she's being controlling and backpedals. Cameron makes a point of agreeing with Daphne about the wine choice to contrast Harper's domination over Ethan. So here we just see more of uh harper's uh uh, personality um at play sure and you can see that she's at least somewhat self-aware of this right here's my incel line too here's the incel line i'm i'm fixating on yep did you see how he got very uncomfortable at that word sure yeah i mean i would too which you know anyone would yeah anyone would be uncomfortable being called an incel of course right but he also like averted his eyes and I think his heart dropped a little bit. I think that okay. he was like, okay, I put up a really good front these last few years, but deep down she's going to find out the bullshit I went through in college. Uh-huh. Okay. Where, you know, um, comparing and contrasting to Cameron, who is the ultimate bro. 
right? I'm surprised that Cameron was even in a dorm. I didn't know why he just didn't pledge straight into a frat. So do you think that perhaps Cameron was worse in college and so was Ethan and maybe even Ethan was worse than that? Or maybe Ethan was the incel that Cameron said and like just not doing anything social, but constantly being like kind of a, an asshole. Uh, I mean, what I, I mean, I could see Ethan as a, you know, shy, socially awkward person. I haven't yet seen, I mean, I don't know, you know, how we're defining incels specifically. Um, you know, the show is obviously using that word and that, that word is, uh, um, got some connotations. So is a socially awkward, you know, sort of computer nerd kid in incel, or is that just sort of, no, get, no, no, you know, lumped across an incel to me and write in, if you disagree with me, an incel to me, when used in this context would be someone who feels entitled to sexual contact. Uh-huh and is very committed to blaming women for not receiving that sexual content. Right. And so therefore is, is deeply misogynistic. Right, yeah, it's a mutation of, of misogyny. Right. And so I, th- my question is, was Ethan once in that camp, or at least tangentially in that camp? And he's, right. I- over the last few years, either genuinely or to win the affections of Harper, has he reformed himself, or at least publicly? Uh, he's cert- I mean, he, he's certainly married an accomplished, intelligent, beautiful woman, so he's overcome something. And certainly, when Cameron makes the line, Ethan looks wounded, I'll, I'll grant you that. And I, I, I just marked it as, okay, they were, you know, because they were uh, roommates— and Cameron is such a bro, right? A, a lot of that jocularity and that, you know, backslapping and, and ribbing, you know, it gets old after a while. It can get really old after a while. And I think, and I did, I just clocked it as, as Cameron pressing on just sort of a, an old part of the relationship that, uh, you know, Ethan probably has never gotten over, you know, and not just from Cameron, but from, you know, lots of other people too. So... All right, we'll play it back on the finale. Sounds good. Sounds good. Okay, uh, the piano player makes uh, eyes at Mia, and Albie catches sight of Portia. They smile at each other. Tanya sees Portia and screams silently at her to go back to her room. Portia leaves in a huff. (laughs) Tanya tries to engage Greg in small talk about their dinner. Oh, wow. Uh What a scene. I just love Jennifer Coolidge. I already commented on this. (laughs) Yeah, so you see Mia not realizing that the Putana garb is going to attract the kind of attention that she is not looking for. And sort of looking for something genuine, perhaps, with the piano player, at least in a professional level. I mean, I think she's fascinated by his career and by his his current activity. But she is artistry. Yeah. And, and she's not so much trying to uh, get a client. Right. Uh, then we have a great comical scene of uh, Lucia leaving Mia and giving Valentina the slip. I, you know, for as much as the there's a lot of heavy topics that we're getting into the show, I like that they're playing some physical comedy with Valentina and Lucia sort of chasing each other through the hotel. I'm, I'm hoping we're going to get some more of those scenes. <laughs> Yeah, Valentina and and Lucia are both very funny in different ways, and I 
I love how Mike White sort of plays with these different personalities. Yeah. I yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to seeing more of Valentina. Uh and you know, Lucia is clever, right? She's she's a smart person who is motivated and is all about her business where, you know, Valentina is this, you know, domineering, controlling and 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 seems to be somewhat harried, you know, hotel manager. Um so yeah, it's a it's a great sort of Tom and Jerry cat and mouse, you know, uh classic pairing. Yeah, so hopefully Mike is going to give us some more of that that comedy. Yeah. All right, we get a scene transition with a strange image of a cross and a marble bust, and we cut to Portia eating room service while she checks out Albie's Instagram page, something that I'm guessing you millennials do all the time. Uh, not anymore. I'm, I'm, listen, I'm happily married for a long time. I don't, I don't <laughs> go, I did. All right, here's my confession is I met my wife by sliding into her Facebook DMs because that's how oh, long, uh, nice. I, I, long ago I met her. And you know what? She responded and here we are. Um, so yes, no, I'm <laughs> familiar with the social media dating stuff. I luckily got together with my wife not even a few months before Tinder and all those other apps that seem awful to use got popular. So I've never experienced that. Right. Well, yeah, neither have I, and I'm, I'm glad. Let's move on in the world, shall we? Yep. I don't know what to make of this strange cross and the on the marble bust in this transition scene, so we'll see if those are just some B-roll-y stuff or, uh, you know, like they did a lot of really great visuals in season one, which I loved a lot. The music paired with the the scene transitions, and I don't feel like we're hitting that mark that we uh, in season two that we had in season one. So I don't know if this is like some more of Mike weaving the the different visual motifs and, and dropping us little clues or if these are just, you know, interesting scenes. So we'll see. Yeah. Albie and his grandfather bed down for the night. Bert's flatulence is a little too much for Albie. So Albie flees his room, leaving his grandfather in his bed and presumably be going to his grandfather's room. Lucia passes Albie in the hallway onto Dominic's room. We didn't talk about this before, but boy, oh boy, they have three separate rooms for these guys. Yeah. At 685 a night for a tiny room, and they look like they have pretty good rooms. Yeah, I think Dominic has got some money. Yeah. Yeah, and we don't know, we, we know that he's somehow involved in Hollywood. Um, but we don't know, you know, to, the, to what extent, but uh, obviously... Anybody who's staying here is coming from uh, a sense of entitlement and privilege for sure. Yeah, definitely. Um, so Albi then is noticing Lucia then in some way. Yes. Yeah. She gives him a look. They give each other a little looks and then uh, Albi goes into his room before uh, she gets to Dominic's room. So he doesn't necessarily know um, the Lucia's target. I think he could piece it together. Yeah, we'll see. Well, yeah, and especially since the fact that Dominic is probably separated from his wife and that Albie's sister is not talking to their father, obviously Dominic has got some problems, probably inherited from his father. Not inherited in, in a genetic sense, but, you know, in, in terms of patterns of behavior. And certainly, uh, I'm sure Albie is aware of his, um, his father's issues uh, as much as his grandfather's issues. Here's something that I'm just realizing now is uh -huh. the order of the rooms was Dominic yes. on the right, Grandpa in the middle, 
and I'll be on the left and probably on purpose so that um, when Dominic was fooling around, his son didn't hear it. Now, Albie is in grandpa's room and Dominic's not going to be worried about being quiet because he's like, my dad gets it. And um, now Albie's going to know. Interesting. I wonder if they're setting up one of these uh, old old sticks where you've got people running around. And, oh, you know, and they have the door, the adjoining door that they made a point of right. in the foursome's room. So I wonder if we're going to get some of the old sort of noises off style, uh, you know, people running around in, in different rooms. The old, you know, Scooby-Doo hallway trick. We learned that the walls are thin this episode. We do, which is surprising for a hotel of this quality, to be honest. Right. Um, the piano player and Mia talk about music, and the piano player propositions Mia. Mia's offended and throws a drink in his face. Um, I think this is just us showing that Mia, you know, um, has a sense of her honor. Yeah, I mean, she's not interested in sex work. So here's a thought. You know, we, we have the testa di moro, which is, you know, uh, 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 a man seduces, uh, a married man seduces an unmarried woman. And thus, she is uh, unwittingly committing uh, adultery. She's upset that her honor has been taken, so she kills the guy, right? So I wonder, like, if there's some sort of something at play here with Mia. Here is somebody who is protect. She's protecting her honor, and a suitor approaches her, the piano player. She's enthralled by him because he's a musician, and she's a musician as well. But when he brings up, you know, sex for money, she's offended. She's like, you know, Fuh, you know, I'm, I'm a true romantic. I, I you know, I, I give my passions to whom who I want to give to, not for, for trade. Um, so I don't wonder if there's something there with the Testa di Moro and, and Mia's character that's happening where, you know, we have somebody who's trying to protect their honor. Well, and at the same time, she should be able to dress however she wants and wear whatever kinds of makeup she wants and not have to worry about being propositioned. <laughs> right. By a guy who's got to be home by midnight. Right. <laughs> All right, then we switch to Cameron and Daphne getting ready for bed, uh, and they engage in boisterous play, which can be heard by Ethan and Harper in the next room. Harper is aghast and disdainful of Cameron and Daphne's spirited escapades. Ethan and Harper exchange their opinions about Cameron and Daphne. Harper tells Ethan about Cameron exposing himself earlier. Ethan makes excuses for Cameron. Harper turns in for the night, and Ethan stares at one of the Testa di Moro busts. Point for Team Incel. <laughs> okay, I'm listening. Very dismissive of this exposure, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, very. That's all I'm saying. I never thought I'd say the phrase point for Team Incel, but... Um, <laughs> no. But no, I think that that's further evidence that Ethan is uh, perhaps a bit ready to excuse male sexual violence. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm gonna I'll, I'm gonna take your comment under advisement. I had clocked it just as like he was making excuses for his old college buddy. But what's the difference? Um, yeah, it's a it's a good point. I, I am impressed that Harper. It seems like there's a level of honesty between Harper and Ethan. So even though their relationship has other issues, at least at the at some part of it, they they can communicate and feel like they can communicate with each other. I think maybe that could have been an awkward situation for another couple, you know, where, oh, hey, that's, you know, my husband's old friend and I don't want to upset him, so I'm just going to keep it silent. You know, I'm going to keep it to myself about what happened. Um, so I thought that that was at least an, uh, a plus for Ethan and, and um, Harper's relationship. Right. Now, you know, on the one hand, the way that she said it, 
she, you know, it sounded less bad than what actually happened. You know, she didn't say he stepped right behind me in the mirror. But at the same time, right. if your wife feels like it's important enough to tell you that someone exposed herself himself to her, yes, you should be prying yes. a little bit more and saying, all right, yeah, you know, tell me what yeah. happened. And I think Ethan dropped the ball on that one. Oh, you know, I accidentally came around the corner. You know, I came around the corner unexpectedly and accidentally saw your friend changing. And, uh, you know, I caught a glimpse of him as opposed to, uh, you know, he got he was getting naked where I could see him and I was uncomfortable. He walked into the area where I could see him to change is much different than the first thing you said. Exactly. Absolutely. And so, yeah, Ethan should be concerned, but he really just sort of, ah, you know, he's a bro. He's, you know, what, you know, he does it all the time, kind of. He just dismissed it, which is, um, it is. That's a little bit of a shocking, shocking response. Team Incel is in the lead. What Harper is very disdainful of Cameron and Daphne. Now, we could say what we could have our, you know, our opinions about Daphne and Cameron and their, you know, their privilege and they're not needing to vote, et cetera. But they certainly seem to be having a, a happy and uh, a joyous relationship. You know, I mean, they're they're playing and having fun in in a ways. In, you know, that actually kind of offends Harper. Yeah, I mean, I think that Harper is just someone who, again, can't let go. And you know, you can learn something from the way both couples operate. Whereas, you know, you can learn to let go from Daphne and Cameron, and you can learn how to care from Ethan and uh, Harper. I also don't wonder, there were kind of uh, some interesting looks that both Harper and Ethan exchanged, not to each other, but like, while one couple was like looking at their book or their laptop, the other was sort of looking and listening to, to Cameron and Daphne. I don't wonder if that at some part, you know, some uh, thought crossed each of their minds of like, gosh, wouldn't it be fun if we could, you know, sound like that? I think that uh, Cameron booking the rooms was like, get me the thinnest walls in the convent. <laughs> it's shocking. That is shocking that they can hear. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Maybe it's part of the whole trying to make them feel comfortable with each other. Yeah. So this uh, staring contest that Ethan has with one of the Testa de Moro busts, that was interesting. He seemed to be sort of falling into a trance with one of them. Hmm. We're not done with these busts, I'll tell you that. Mm, not by a long shot. All right, Tanya finds the two missing macarons, and she goes to tell Greg, who's in the bathroom, whispering on the phone. Tanya asks him what he's doing, and he explains that he's dealing with work. She offers him the cookies, but he refuses and shames her again about her eating habits. Tanya sits dejectedly on the bed. Dick move, Greg, dick move. Wow, that was, that was really bad. Uh, I mean, clearly Greg hid them, right? You think so? Yeah, I, that's what I got immediately, Whoa. is that Greg hid the two macaroons. They were weirdly placed. Yeah, they were weirdly placed behind her bag like that. They don't just end up there. He definitely hid them and then said, oh, you ate five macaroons. Huh. Do you think he's actually dealing with work, or is he dealing with other personal matters? Could be an affair. Could be his cancer treatments. I don't, I don't see him as, a, as having an affair necessarily. My, my money is on that he's dealing with work. Okay. Uh, but he's being a jerk about it. Like, he could just say, hey, honey, I've got a situation happening. I got to deal with some stuff. Uh, but no, he's got to be all, you know, um, uh, jerky and jerk, jerk, a jerkosaurus about it. You know, <laughs> like, I mean, come on, man. You know, this is your wife, you know? Yeah. Talk to her like a person. 
Oh, he's horrible to her. I, I just, yep. if he dies at the end, I'm not going to be sad. <laughs> right. All right. Final scene. Dominic and Lucia get better acquainted. Lucia says it's her dream to go to Los Angeles. And Dominic confesses that he's dealing with difficult life circumstances. They get physical. Yeah. Dominic, Dominic, Dominic. If you want your wife back, you got to stop sleeping around. Right. Like, it's fine if you want to engage in this behavior, but you're not doing it. It's not necessarily, yeah, you got to be careful about your, your family relationships, but he's definitely doing it. He's going about it in a dishonest way, which is uh, probably, you know, harmful to his, his relationships. And part of probably what he's dealing with in his life is as a result of, of this type of behavior. While at the same time, he needs, you know, he has the needs that he has, and he's not managing them well. So, you know, that's on you, Dominic. He could control himself if he wanted to. Yep. He's making every choice wrong, and they are choices. And uh, I don't feel too badly for him in this moment. Right. Well, we'll see where that goes. I have a feeling that next, next episode, we're going to have Albie very mad. And perhaps staring at the ceiling after hearing his dad go at it all night. Right. David, would you rather sleep in a bed with your flatulent grandpa or listen to your dad go at it all night with a prostitute? Yeah, absolutely. I would choose my flatulent grandfather over listening to my parent uh, go at it all night. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, now that we've gotten that settled, I think that's all I have to say about this episode. I, I really liked it. Uh, I'm really excited to see the, this season progress. I think that they've got a great table setting. I think that they've gotten great framework. Uh, I think that they're going to be examining the issue of sexism, examining the issue of sexual harassment and assault from a lot of different angles this season. And I'm really excited to see what Mike White has to say, because I thought that what he had to say about racism in season one, one was really well done. Yeah, I'm totally with you on that. I'm, I'm really curious as to see what Mike White has uh, up his sleeve for us. Um, it's certainly a lot of potent characters in a very potent setting. And, um, just like season one with, um, sort of the, the physical comedy surrounding all of these other uncomfortable, um, uh, topics, I'm really interested to, to see what kind of hijinks that they can get up to in the hotel with, uh, Valentina and Lucia. Um, cause I think there's going to be some difficult, like you say, I think there's going to be some difficult topics that they're going to be covering, and I definitely need a little bit of comedy to, to, keep, uh, to keep it light for me. Yeah, let's hope they strike that balance. Yeah, absolutely. All right, don't forget to write in at whitelotus at thelorehounds.com if you want to send in your feedback, questions, comments, if you want to take bets on who dies. Uh, go to the Bald Move Discord server if you want to chat. You can go to baldmove.com for that. And if you want ad-free and early versions of these episodes, go to patreon.com slash the lorehounds. We're also on Twitter at the lorehounds. Shout out to Samarshan for being our first member of the Loremaster tier of our Patreon. Thanks so much, and we will see you next week. The White Lotus Podcast is produced by the Lorehounds and published by Bald Move. You can get ad-free and early versions of these episodes at patreon.com slash the lorehounds. Connect with us on Twitter at the lorehounds or by email at whitelotusatthelorehounds.com. Thanks for listening. A new Star Wars journey begins in the place all good journeys begin. At, well... 
the beginning. This Star Wars Day, I'm excited to introduce the new Star Wars Canon Timeline podcast, where we will piece together the complete story of that galaxy far, far away, in timeline order, from the dawn of the Jedi through the great unknown following the sequel trilogy. This is a podcast for both Star Wars superfans and complete newbies. Listen to the short intro episode now to hear how it works and what to expect over the coming weeks as we set the stage for the new television series, The Acolyte, which we will be covering with weekly breakdowns. Subscribe to the Star Wars Canon Timeline podcast wherever you listen to take part in one of the most epic and expansive stories ever told, following all the twists and turns from start to finish. May the 4th be with you all, all month and beyond. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.